0: Good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema. And I want to say, Lee, if you are out there listening, this whole episode is basically for you. So a lot of things to go over for episode 93. I mean, I've been looking a lot at at the stuff that I've been posting up. Uh, There was basically the the two-episode rant on Godzilla vs. Kong in which... I just wanna state for the record with the recent videos and, and information that have been coming out on a steady basis on the fact that the movie was terribly cut and reduced down from what could have been probably a detailed and significant motion picture into basically a full-length feature video game, uh, I am vindicated in that. and I, One of the few times I'll say, told you so. So if you get a chance, look at my timeline. Uh, thanks uh, especially to one follower who has provided me with some of these videos. Uh, It's definitely shown that my my podcasts were were on site and uh, I knew it watching the movie in the theater. But that's not what this episode is about. This is one where uh, lately on Twitter, there's been a a new trend also with uh, people asking very deep questions and looking for answers. And uh, one of them happened to be, if you could go back in time and change anything, you know, what, what would it be? And I mean, not that that's such a particularly deep question, but looking at my own life and and especially professionally, I I don't think there's really anyone out there who would not go back and change something, whether it's the death of a loved one, someone, it doesn't matter. There's probably always something we can tweak. And uh, I'm always very conscious about where I stand professionally in my career and i feel that i'm always running against the clock that i'm trying to make up time for so much time wasted and for a while i i and i still do i feel that the crossroads for me both personally and professionally uh, came with my very brief stint at uh, penn state university and i was accepted there for filmmaking and i left high school as this big fish in a small pond And I was going to blow the world away and set Penn State's campus on fire with just how amazing I was and my talent with my short subject films. And I was just going to show them a thing or two. And I was going to basically replicate uh, the magic I had in high school uh, over with uh, Penn State on the college campus. And that didn't happen. But was Penn State really my crossroads? I need to revisit going all the way back to when I was a child. And now, this episode is for all of you also, not just Lee. And I'll explain who Lee is in a moment. But this episode is also for all of you filmmakers out there who have the, I can do it later. There's plenty of time. I'll get to that later mindset. I'm telling you from someone with the experience, don't succumb to it. So I'll beat that point into the ground by the end of this episode. I want to go back to elementary school for a moment. I I attended regular kindergarten and first grade. I took a test at the end of uh, first grade over the summer before second grade. And it was some kind of aptitude test in which I was labeled gifted. And they removed me from the public school setting into a private classroom. It was still housed in a public school, but I was in a private classroom with basically nine other kids all who tested out as well and were labeled gifted. And for second and third grade, we had the same teacher. I was transferred to a different school where she really did enlighten us. She, she really embraced this gifted teacher thing. Now, being a former educator, I can look at things and probably this was a teacher that got selected by our administration because she sh- uh, showed certain promise or uh, aptitude to deal with gifted or high, higher level thinking kids. Now, I am not uh, claiming superiority here to anyone. Believe me, that's not the point in telling you this. It is just simply serving as the background. And during one of these classes, we had enrichment, in which we had special guest teachers that would come in that taught different subjects, whether it was science or it was math or a special concentration in in English or even foreign language. Uh, One of them was a man named Mr. Erdman. And he not only taught science, but he also taught something called filmmaking. And he taught us how to make these little short subject um, Super 8 movies. Uh, They were were just probably like maybe four minutes each, probably a, a reel, not even that for Super 8. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, there was a time when movies were actually shot on film. And, uh, this was, uh, also with sound, this camera had, it had a microphone on it. So we had to write a script and we had to make our movie about a pet rock. So we were given, cause that was a rage around 1971 through 1976, somewhere there, pet rocks were all the rage. I mean, people were spending money on rocks to keep as pets. It was a fad. And so we had to one up that. So we had... Uh, you know, a rock. We had to go out and find a rock on the playground. And then we had to decorate this rock. And I did mine with felt and glue. And if I remember right, it was kind of like this, this pink and red, it looked like a mouse. And I think his name was Herman, something like that. So much for being gifted, huh? Because that's really inspired. And some other kids said some great stuff. I remember this one kid who I always looked up to. He was a creative genius and an artistic talent. Um, He did Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And then we had to build a set and I believe I created like a gymnasium kind of thing and it was all about a workout with this pet rock and he was going to teach everybody how to work out. I have no idea why I selected this. And I remember there were others that were very um, esoteric. One of them was by a girl who did hers and and the set looked very uh, Tim Burton-ish if I'm not mistaken. And it was all set to the background music of raindrops keep falling on my head. And I, I, that stands out to me. And I remember that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde had a relay race, like an Olympic relay race for some reason. But mine was very uninspired. And it was just this uh, pink and red mouse trying to show everyone uh, how to lift weights and exercise. It was pretty dumb. But I fell in love with the idea of making movies. And I remember when they were all shown, we had a a premiere party for all of them. And I think the total running time, like I said on them, might've been three, four minutes tops. But we had to write a script. We had to shoot it. We had to set up camera angles. We even had to storyboard it. And I want you to keep in mind, this was all around second or third grade. So I got the bug. And by that point, my mother took me to see Jaws in 1975 at the theater. And it was that movie, which I've said numerous times on this podcast, it was Jaws that was the movie that made me want to make movies. I just watched an audience give Jaws a standing ovation. I never saw that before. And look, I was scared. Jaws was scary, uh, but it was a fun scary. And I've said before that Jaws is probably X-rated at that time for anybody over 30. Kids, we, we ate it up. I even wanted to see it again in the theater. However, it really wrecked my mother's nerves and she's like, I'm not taking you back to see that movie. But she did enjoy it. But I got the bug and from there on out, I knew what I wanted to do. All I wanted to do was make movies. No more archaeologists, no more dinosaurs. I wanted to make movies. And so I started writing short stories. I had no access to technology on how to make movies. But I did get a tape recorder, an audio tape recorder. And I started getting my friends together and I wrote like radio skits. And we started recording these 30-minute tapes of different kind of stories and radio plays and we incorporated sound effects and music. And and all of it was not professionally done like by a studio, but literally putting the tape recorder next to a record player and allowing the music to come from the record player onto the, the recording mic of the audio tape recorder. So it sounded all very tinny and very shitty, but it didn't matter, I was creating. And I started writing my short stories and I was writing books. And by sixth grade, I was writing Jaws 3. I had seen Jaws 2 in 1978 in the theaters and I loved it and I loved Jaws and it was Jaws, 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 Jaws. And I wrote a Jaws 3 and by all accounts, it is horrible. Although I will still stand, it's probably better than what we ended up getting maybe not as funny. I wrote this and I wrote a number of stories with my friends in school. One of them was this beautiful girl named Tony. She was extremely popular. And you can read all about this, by the way, on my Dread Central Horror Editorial Series, which I will provide the links for at the end of this podcast. Um, you can read all about it. I documented all of this because of the genre, the horror genre's influence on me as a boy. And so I put Tony. In JAWS 3, and everybody couldn't believe it. And my teacher would actually have me read sections of the class. I mean, I was handwriting this in a Mead spiral notebook. And yet, people really thought, and I think even I thought, I'm going to get this published. I'm going to be a bestseller in sixth grade. It's not happening, but I ain't high. And then I started writing other stories with monsters. I wrote a monster story and then I did a Jaws ripoff and an Orca ripoff with a killer whale that was misunderstood and being hunted. I mean, again, you can't really get a lot of points for originality here, but I was in that stage of write what you know. And by seventh grade, I had discovered Stephen King. So my writing entirely shifted as I started to really devour Stephen King. And it all started with reading Carrie. That was my first. And then I went right into Night Shift, his collection of short stories. And suddenly I I felt that God had spoken to me in the way of, of the literary process. But I loved a film growing up called Mad Monster Party. And again, this is documented in my Dread Central series. And I wanted to remake Mad Monster Party as a live action feature. At first, I thought it could be a stage play. And I was going to create it as a theatrical stage play for our middle school. Now, I want you to understand something as well. Our middle school was one of the last great experiments of the 1970s. It was an open concept school, which means it didn't have any fucking walls. It it was uh, two semicircles attached in the middle with a gymnasium. It was a big circle, I should say, in the middle with 2 semicircles in the end that housed identical grades. So on the left, you had lake house. On the right, you had mountain house. And you had two fifth grades, two sixth grades, two seventh grades, two eighth grades. So you had five mountain and five lake, six mountain, six lake, seven mountain, seven lake. You get the idea. And no walls. The grades were separated by coat racks on wheels, and we didn't have lockers. We had tote trays, which were in these big rolling closets, and they were plastic trays on these particle board dividers held up by dowel rods. And this was supposed to be this open concept thing. It was like a hive. I mean, you go back now and you think about it. How the hell did we learn anything in this middle school? But the magic was in the basement. Now, some engineer thought it would be brilliant to put a TV studio, not only in a school's basement, but below the gym. So whenever you're recording down there and they're having gym class above, you're recording all of that. You're getting all the footsteps, the basketballs hitting the floor, the whistles, the yells, the shouts, the screams. I don't know who thought that was a good idea. They should have put it on the other side of the building, but they did not. It was directly below the gym. However, it was a full functioning TV studio had three black and white television cameras, not color. We did not have wireless microphones. We had clip-on microphones with like a 25-foot lead on them that fed into a studio that was behind glass where they had mixers and faders and they had reel-to-reel videotape and then umatic videotape where like these giant oversized VHS cassettes. This is before the home video revolution was really taking hold. So we're looking at 1978 I think the school opened in 76, but by the time I got there, it was 1978 in sixth grade. The VCRs, they weren't VCRs. They they were still these reel-to-reel things, but you could still record video on them. At first, I never even considered uh, the TV studio or making or remaking Mad Monster Party. I was blessed to have a teacher named Donna Haddon. And Mrs. Haddon taught eighth grade reading. And in seventh grade, Uh, I decided to join TV and film production. And the reason why, I had some exploratory with another teacher who me and my friends just absolutely drove crazy. And she thought of Donna Haddon, who taught this TV and video kind of exploratory. Exploratory was a class at the end of the day. Uh, It was the last class of the day where you could sign up for an elective class that had interest. I mean, there were all kinds from... Uh, sports, like basically an extended gym class, or uh, one science teacher taught um, what's in a pond because uh, about probably a quarter mile away from the school, which was all on the same property, you could walk down in the woods and go to this big pond and you could do biological experiments on the creatures that lived in the pond and all that. So it was that kind of thing. And I forget what exploratory we're in, but we drove this teacher nuts and she went over to Donna Had and said, listen, I've got this boy and his friends and they're driving me nuts. Maybe they would be better suited for your exploratory. And she kind of dumped us. She student dumped us on Donna Haddon. Well, we got involved with her, and she was trying to do an adaptation of On the Sidewalk Bleeding by Evan Hunter, the short story. Donna Haddon wanted to make something that reflected gang culture. So the kids were swearing. And she sanctioned all this with our principal and said they're going to use some colorful language and blah, 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 blah. And the principal, who was another very progressive man named Dr. Paul Haracle, who was wonderful. Uh, This was a principal who stood out in the hallway every day and said, good morning. I swear he said good morning to every student that passed by him. This was a guy who personally loaned out lunch money to kids knowing he'd never get it back. He was terrific. And Dr. Haracle gave Donna Haddon full creative license to do what she needed to make a difference. That's basically his attitude. And it was going to have violence and we had to bring in a fake knife. I mean, this would never happen today. And Dr. Haracle administration had to approve the knife, but it was like uh it looked like a fake, it was a fake switchblade. It was not real. It was rubber, but she really wanted to do this right. Well, it didn't work, but I learned a lot. And I thought when I get into eighth grade next year, I'm going to come back to Mrs. Haddon and see if we can do a play because I had done a play in seventh grade called Dracula and I did a retelling of Dracula uh, and I involved my friends and my one friend played Count Dracula and we did all the props and I helped do some of the makeup and the special effects. It was cool, but it was a play. It was not a film. So in 8th grade I came back to Mrs. Haddon and I told her all about my summer and I had seen alien over the summer and I was describing this to her while we walked around the playground on recess duty and she listened to my idea for mad monster party and then we went on strike and the teacher strike lasted a little over a month back then people were just in the phone book and I kept thinking about mad monster party I want to do this I want to do this I want to remake it and I found her name in the phone book, her husband's name. I knew her husband's name and there weren't really many Haddens, So I called her at home and she said, I was on the steps, painting my steps. When my husband answered the phone, she said, it was you. I hear I was telling her Mad Monster Party is on TV. The actual 1967 Rankin Bass classic. Please watch it. Well, she said she did. She went down and watched it. And, uh, she thought, wow, this could be interesting, but she got an idea. Why make it a play? Why not remake it as a live action movie? And That is how I did my arguably first feature film. When we came back after the strike, which was late October, uh, we started the idea of getting this movie up. It was in pre-production, I guess you could say. Now my friend down the road, she rewrote the script, which I basically transcribed uh, from the audio tapes. I recorded Mad Monster Party on audio tape when it played on TV one time. And I illustrated the entire movie. Like I drew it as a comic uh, because we didn't have VCRs then. There was no way to see it otherwise. I mean, you did, but they were, they were really expensive and the technology was not really out there at that point. So uh, my friend transcribed everything. And she was going to play the Phyllis Diller role. And my friend who played Dracula in seventh grade was going to reprise the role of Dracula in this. And I got my best friend at the time. He had a very Tom Hanks, Jimmy Stewart, kind of all shucks thing about him. And he played Felix Flanken. But the catch was trying to find my Francesca. Francesca in the film is this hot, redheaded, bombshell babe. And the best part was she gets her dress ripped off in a catfight. So, of course, as a horny preteen boy or just about to be boy, teen boy, um, I was very excited at the idea of getting a hot girl to agree to get her dress torn off for my movie. And I approached, of course, the ever-popular Tony. She read the script and I told her what would have to happen. She's like, I get my dress ripped off, like I'll be in my underwear. And I said, yeah, yeah. And she's like, I'm not doing that. And plus, I can't act. And here's the other thing. We did have a girl in our class who had flaming red hair and even a beauty mark like Francesca in Mad Monster Party. And I wanted her to be my Francesca. The dress ripping off thing was a deal breaker. I even said, well, what if you don't get your dress ripped off? She's like, I don't want to act and I don't want to be in front of a camera. So anyway, we ended up getting a Francesca. And we started making this movie. And then our Francesca got sick with ovarian cysts. And we thought, how long will she be out? She could be out of school for two months. And the end of the year was now coming. And we shot this thing downstairs. I'm going to give you a link to actually see this movie in my notes. And I have it up on a Vimeo account where you can watch it. And I think that's the best way. I could sit here forever and describe it, but I really thought I was something. And I was making this feature film and I had a girlfriend, this beautiful, tall, blonde girl that I never thought I could get. And she was so embarrassed by this whole thing. She's like, I can't believe it. You are on the verge of... Of being popular, and you're making this very nerdy, geeky kind of thing. I mean, I was walking around at the end of the day through the hallways to get to the TV studio in this white wig to be Dr. Frankenstein and these old man spectacles, and I had old man makeup on my face, and I was wearing a lab coat, and I just embarrassed the living shit out of her, is really what it was. But that stuck with me because she's like, You are on the verge of being popular. You're on the edge of popularity and you're wasting it on this with your dork friends. And all I wanted was her. I mean, she was beautiful and we were getting hot and heavy. She was the the first real girlfriend, I guess you could say. I took her out on a real date and we dated and we went to dinner. All in eighth grade, man. Um, I was pretty impressed with myself, I thought. And this is going to come back and bite me in the ass. The movie premiered at the end of the year, last day of school, in June of 1981, and I still have this prize. My friends and the crew gave me an Academy Award. They made it out of cardboard and put some kind of you know, uh, material cloth, shiny, sparkly stuff all around it. In fact, I still have it hanging in my office and I'm looking up at it right now. And that's how important it was to me. And my girlfriend at the time was blown away by the response. People liked it. And it was terrible. It was beyond Ed Wood. In fact, it makes Ed Wood look like Steven Spielberg. But I was in eighth grade. And I thought, I did this. So I was like, what? 12 years old? 13 years old at the time. That's all I was. And then I went into high school. And here is where things got different. In ninth grade, My uncle got me my own Super 8 movie camera, and it had no sound. It was a Kodak Super 8, and I started immediately making movies. I became the kid with the camera, and in ninth grade, I thought, I'm going to turn this cartoon character named Sped Woman that I created in eighth grade with a buddy of mine, and I'm going to turn her into a live-action movie, a superhero and it was my brother in a dress, and I've, I've talked about this before, and it's also in my Dread Central editorial series that you can read up on. And I thought, I'm going to be like the next Benny Hill. They were comedy skits, and I loved Benny Hill's uh, comedy skits, especially I was heavily influenced by his Wonder Grand uh, comedy skit, which I just laughed my ass off every time I watched it. So I got my friends in the neighborhood to dress up in zany costumes, and we Hung out on, on moving vehicles. Like I was riding on the roof of a car going probably 30, 40 miles down the road, uh, trying to get the camera angles of my brother tied to the hood of the car and, uh, dragging him from a skateboard with rope and, and doing like, I mean, if, if he would have fallen off the skateboard, he would have been severely hurt. I mean, at least road rash, not to mention a cracked skull, who knows what could have happened or God forbid another car would have hit us. It was just terrible but I started learning quickly how to edit. I had a Mickey mouse light board and I would use a magnifying glass and I would look at my scenes and then I would cut with scissors and I spliced with scotch tape. And then I poked holes in the tape for it to go through the sprockets. My mother got me an old super eight movie projector, which I still have that she got secondhand from a man in Easton who was, who put it up in a classified ad. And, um, There was no sound, like I said. So when they finally rolled, you'd have to project them up on a, on a wall, a white wall, or I started taking the projector to school and showing them on the movie screens that they would pull down in the classroom to show you. We still watched movies in our classroom, 16 millimeter films. Well, I would bring my super eight millimeter projector. And show my class. Well, this started to catch on. Hey, can I be in a Spedwoman movie? I want to be a villain. I want to be a villain. I want to be a villain. And we moved it up where we started shooting these things up in town. We started moving them into the mall. I started working at the mall in 11th grade at the movie theater. So the security guards knew me. The management knew me. I had access to an entire mall. And all through high school, I was making these movies. And they were fun. And they were funny. And I became known as kind of a Spielberg. But then... I made a big change here. And that is, in 10th grade, I really just wanted nothing more than to be popular. I wanted to live the John Hughes high school life. And as much as I was talented, I was called faggot a lot because I was creative and I was writing the weird stories and I was making the weird movies and I had the weird friends. I wanted to mainstream myself popular-wise and I changed my entire image between ninth grade and 10th grade over the summer. I changed my image, I found uh, a friend of mine, his father threw out this old khaki safari jacket and uh, I took that and I grew my hair longer and I grew out a mustache and I blonded up, my hair with sun in. and I had this, I had OP t-shirts and jeans and these uh, funky sneakers and I had this California kind of filmmaker look to me. I, I was very California casual. And I came back to school with this look and not only did I get attention for it, but it got girls and girls also love a dude with a camera. So I started becoming well-known among my class and I got distracted because what I really should have done was stayed focused on developing my craft. And here we go. So by 11th grade, I'm making all these silent films, but I had also become class president. And I was known as a partying president. And there's a lot there in the background of that. But let's just say uh, my class presidency was very much like Fast Times at Ridgemont High meets the Wolf of Wall Street with a little risky business without the hookers. I think that's the best way to describe my high school years. And I had a blast. And I loved the people I was with. And nothing made me happier than to spend my weekends when I wasn't working, just partying with them. I always had a Really beautiful girlfriend. I was lucky. I I just had a blast. But I was really caught up in this good time because I always thought, well, there'll be more time. I can do this over the summer. And what was this? Well, I could develop a lot of these short stories that I'm writing that my creative writing teacher, Mr. Michael Steen, used to spend plenty of time critiquing and giving me input and criticism. And I was becoming a better writer because of him. The same with my English teacher, Mr. Burnett. And my other English teacher in ninth grade, Patty uh, Schneider. I was able to take some great teachers and take their input and improve my writing, but I wasn't doing anything with it. And why? Well, I was too busy being popular and chasing the girls, and I loved chasing the girls. But I had a friend named Lee. And Lee was kind of, I always said, He'd make a great James Bond villain, but he was just too comical. Lee was taller than everybody else. He was like six foot three, six foot four. He played football, but he was just this big, goofy, funny brainiac. He was a genius. One time he made a cattle prod out of some kid's plastic toy and a bunch of D batteries. And so Lee was just, he was just amazing is what he was. And we became good friends because he also had this very bizarre sixth sense of humor. And I loved him. I adored him. It was this high school James Bond villain that came to me. And Lee said, you know, I have a way to make your movies even better. And I was like, well, tell me more. He said, why don't you come over to my house? I'll show you some stuff. And first of all, I had no problem because his sister was hot. And she was a grade behind me, I believe. So I'd been itching to ask her out. But I went to Lee's house and his sister was there. So I got to flirt with her a little bit. And then he took me into the basement. And it was truly like walking into a James Bond villain's lair. It was filled with technology. He had all the latest, coolest stuff. His father, through his business, had access to all of this. And it was theirs between lights and screens, a porta pack VCR. And what that was is GE made them. and it could be in one way, a full VCR that could sit on your TV, but it would play also the VHS tapes that you recorded from a color video camera which his father had. And it would connect. it was a Panasonic camera and it connected to this portadeck. And you could make video movies with full sound. I was blown away. And not only that, he had special effects faders where you could color correct and fade, you know, ins and outs for transitions. They had boxes of copyright-free music, tapes and tapes of copyright-free music. It was amazing. And most of all, Lee said to me, why don't you just, uh... Use this. Nobody's using it. I said, oh, no, I can't do that. I could use. I had access to all of the I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars of new technology. I know all of, all of you are listening now going, big deal. I mean, you can do more now on your phone than you could with all of that equipment back then. But we didn't have that back then. There was no internet. And I was unleashed. And he showed me just what he could do. He took my Super 8 movies on film. He used the video camera. And recorded it on that GE deck. And my movies suddenly went to video. Now you're probably thinking, ooh, big deal, Harrison. But it was. Because not only that, he added sound to them on a two-track system. We could record vocals on one track and music on the other. And I could balance the levels. And suddenly, my movies took on a whole new life. They were more than just silent films with me scratching lasers frame by frame. They were sound, they had music. We had sound effects and we had voices and holy shit, it was really like Benny Hill now. I had done it, I had arrived. And when I first started showing these on video, I mean, we could take it into the high school now and pop them on a 25 inch Magnavox that was on a cart with a gigantic top loading VCR. And I'd shove that VHS tape in and I would play it. And people are laughing and they're saying, replay that, rewind it. I want to see that again. I want to hear that again. I had blown up. Lee made me blow up. And he said, he goes, listen, you have all this other cool stuff. I read your short stories. We should make one of them into a film. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was so high on the fact that girls thought it was cool. I was cool. It was fun. Everybody wanted to be in my stupid Spedwoman movies. And they were easy to make. In fact, they were just the same formula every stinking time. But if something works, you stick with it. And I never challenged myself. And I just kept buying into the whole popularity thing. And it just went from there. And so by the time I kept thinking, well, I I have more time. I'll do this. Maybe I'll shoot one of my horror short stories. For example, I had a friend whose father owned a funeral home and one of my short stories takes place in a funeral home and I had access to everything. Coffins, uh, embalming equipment. I had it all. I didn't take advantage of it. And I never once took Lee up on borrowing his video camera that poured a deck or anything. All I did was bring him my silent Super 8 movies, and he gladly transferred them to video, and we would sit in his basement some nights and sitting downstairs and adding these sounds, and it was brilliant, but it wasn't challenging, and I got comfortable, and this is where I have my regret because it was Lee who said, you should do more, and I should have really, at that time, been working on a true feature film taking one of my stories or even a Stephen King short story and turning it into a feature movie. And I didn't do it. And I knew I should have. It was nagging at me all the time. But it was boobs and beer and partying and popularity. And that's what I wanted. So I lived the John Hughes life. But I missed out on the Spielberg one. Even in my yearbook, it said, I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm going to be the next Steven Spielberg. I want to make movies. I want to write movies. Well, I'm doing that. But what could I have done beyond that if I had just taken advantage of what was given to me, offered to me in 11th grade? But I didn't do it. And look, I devoured everything I could on books and what few magazines there were. Fangoria was like my Bible. I mean, I I subscribed. It was the first magazine I ever subscribed so, I mean, I, I devoured everything. I knew how movies were made. I, I knew how George Romero did this. And I knew how, you know, uh, John Carpenter was doing this. And I was up to date on everything. But I wasn't updating myself. And I didn't take advantage of what Lee offered me. And I regret it 100%. So, by the time my senior year came, I was so embedded in being popular. But I had not lost my virginity by this point. I had a lot of close calls but I guess it could be pretty much said that I went through high school with the biggest set of blue balls there might have ever been. So many times, just put on the brakes because I had a mother that was saying, don't get anybody pregnant. You have a bright future ahead of you. And I kept thinking like that, like, oh my God, with my luck, I'll I'll get this girl pregnant. No, no, no. And I know people say, well, there was birth control. What about, you know, condoms and all that stuff. I felt that if there was one condom with the hole in it, I'm going to be the guy. I can't win the lottery, but I'll get the one in a billion hole in a condom and that'll be the one I pick off the rack. So it was a lot of uh, frustration, shall we say to say the least. And by the time my senior year was over and I graduated, I fell in love again. And that was the problem because I lost my virginity to this girl over the summer after graduation, but before college. And she became my number one focus. And I should have spent that summer at least getting a better demo and portfolio reel ready and learning more about filmmaking itself to put together a production once I landed on Penn State's campus. And I didn't do it. Nope. Instead, I went to Penn State and I basically repeated my senior year, effectively making it 13th grade. So I had a bunch of wild roommates and they were a lot of fun. And there was a cheerleader down the hall in the apartment building where I lived. And I focused my attention on her. Again, another opportunity where I could have really done something. Penn State had a great drama program where I could have got people to act in in my stuff. I started, I got an electric typewriter for graduation and I was writing uh, different scripts and really doing some cool stuff. And it just sat on the desk. I made a couple of uh, Sped Woman-like movies at Penn State. And uh, I just basically repeated what I did in high school. I mean, they were zany, run real fast, kind of Benny Hill movies. Not really stretching myself and continuing the big fish in the small pond attitude. And then I flunked out. I did get the college cheerleader and uh, I partied a lot and I had some fun with my screwy little movies, but I was crashing and burning in class. I wasn't going to class. I could have gone to class. I chose not to. I thought I had it all made. One of the things I did was, is I would only show up for the tests until a bunch of my professors uh, called me out and said, you do know that if you miss three classes without a doctor's excuse, it is automatic failure. I came home with a 1.0 for my first semester. I limped along trying to return for a second semester, and I crashed and burned and realized, I'm not going anywhere. The only place I could go was California. And I decided to finagle my way, which is a, I think I've talked about it before on this podcast, and I'm not going to get into the details here. I ended up getting a job at Universal Studios before we even had a home in California. I flew out and the next day showed up at Universal. Or Anthony Perkins, who played Norman Bates, if you're not familiar with him, I hope you are if you're listening to this podcast, but he got me a job and I was a paid PA on the B-lot of Universal for Murder, She Wrote. I bounced around on there, but it was a guy there who was teaching me after hours because the highway was so backed up, but he taught me digital editing because it was just starting at the time, non-linear editing. And he said, this is going to be the wave of the future. So I got that background. But then I saw that I was kind of not really doing anything out there. I wasn't taking advantage of anything. And there's a very long story, which I could do a whole podcast just on California. And I won't belabor you with that. But I ended up coming home. I dated an actress out there who was on a soap opera. And she was uh, one of the bikini girls in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 at the end in the swimming scene, swimming pool scene. And she even offered me, uh, if I got married to her, Uh, Her grandfather was planning on leaving her a couple million dollars and we could start a production company together. But I didn't love her. And I said no. And I ended up coming back home to run the same movie theater where I was once an usher. And I became an assistant manager at this multiplex in the mall. And it was there that I got a new video camera. And I ended up going into debt paying over $3,000 for a JVC VHSC camcorder. And I bought equipment. I bought a special effects generator and I bought a color corrector and I could do fades. And I spent 10 grand. Now this is around 1986, 87, but I spent 10 grand on a video editing deck, a Panasonic editing deck system. So I could edit videos. And I made a bunch of them while I worked at the theater. I got my friends involved and I did a variety of those but I still wasn't doing anything serious. And then I thought I need to. I need to beef up this portfolio. I've got nothing to show for it, but really dumb, bad comedies. And I crashed and burned making those. I got uh, my one best friend and my girlfriend at the time to do this drama and they fell in love and all of this stuff and they didn't fall in love in real life, but I was starting to turn myself to my career and I think I probably would have been okay with that because I realized all the time I had wasted. And instead... I just made mediocre shit and it pieced together badly. And there were some scenes that I, I didn't hook the microphone up right on the, cause I got a separate microphone input for the VHSC and it didn't record the sound properly. And I was trying to loop it and none of it was working. So any attempts for, for dramas or they were all beyond my, my scope of, of Sped Woman and Super 8 productions. I mean, it, It really was Ed Wood filmmaking at its best. I went into debt with an incredible amount of money on this video equipment and I tried and I tried really hard and then I realized I got to also have better content and I focused on my writing a lot more and improving my script writing and my three-act structure and hitting beats properly and starting to send this stuff out for professional evaluation and that did result and started getting me some things in the way of, I ended up getting a manager, I'm sorry, an agent, and uh, getting my stuff seen, and started slowly getting myself taken more seriously. But I still wasn't there. And here's the thing. It was already the 90s now. Time was running out. I was getting older. I'm heading into my mid-20s, and I'm hitting 30 soon. And so, until the film thing happened, I diverted, went back to college. I did four years of uh, bachelor's degree. I did it in two. And I still worked full-time at least 45 hours a week uh, at the movie theater, managing the movie theater. And I got my teaching degree. And I went on to do that until the fields. But I kept writing, and I kept getting my scripts out there and noticed, and I did have a film that went into pre-production with Katie Holmes in 1998. And that's my passion project to this day, folks. And one that if I have to do a crowdfunder, I will, because Columbine ended that project and Katie had to go on to do Disturbing Behavior, which became her first feature after her TV uh, series, Dawson's Creek. So they got her. I did not, I mean, I had her, but then they shut the film down because it did. My film opened up with a school shooting. Sadly, I had written that in 1983. It was a script that I had been working on a long time. And the movie just shut down. That was it. No one's touching it. And that's still my passion project and a story and a podcast for another time. But the point of all of this is, if you're a filmmaker right now, whether a screenwriter, a burgeoning director, editor, producer, whatever, and you hear me, listen to me, okay? I know you hear me, but listen, you don't have all the time in the world. And it's going much faster than you think. And suddenly you're on the other side of 20. and Then you're 30. And you're 40. And each time we go around that sun, the window closes a little bit more. Take advantage of your resources. If you have the equipment, if you have the talent, and you have the time, utilize them all. Lee, if you are listening, I don't know where you are. We lost track of each other. You were right. I wish I had listened. I heard you, but I do want to say thank you.